Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered Him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making Him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. The title of this third talk of the mission is Some Obstacles to Letting Him Shine Through Us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do... uh, come before you again tonight with grateful hearts convinced that it is your desire, not mine or Dennis's or anybody else in this church, but yours, that we would come to know you and the difference that your son makes, and that we would go forth from here tonight and every day of our lives to be witnesses in all the many ways that you ask us to be witnesses. Father, we ask in a special way tonight that you would pour out the gift of your Holy Spirit upon us. Help us all as we reflect upon the different things that are constant threats or temptations to extinguish the fire that you have lit within us. Help us to hear and to be convicted in those areas in our own lives that we have to build a shelter around the flame to keep it burning. Mother Mary, you who were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended like tongues of fire upon the apostles, pray for us, members of this parish entrusted to your patronage in a special way that we too would receive the same gift of the Spirit. All these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Evangelization team, be seated. All right. Okay, my mother says hello. (laughs) I mean that. Talked to her today. Somebody had asked me if I would pass off to my mom a name to put on her legal pad, and so she did. But she's been praying for all of us. She has since she knew the mission was first announced back about a year ago, and she wants you all to know that. You can return the favor by please praying for my mom. I'd be uh, grateful for that. Quick recap. Last night we talked about God's expectations of us. Hopefully nothing new there, to be sure. But to recap quick, his expectation is that we will be light. Good. I know, you can't see me. I'm all in black. and Sorry. (laughs) And to be light, we said, is to help others to better see. And specifically to help them see better about who God is and about life, the purpose of life, what we're made for, how to find the happiness and the fulfillment that we all crave. And it's his expectation of us that we, all of us, will be light because his desire, that which he wants, is for everyone to be saved. And people can't be saved unless they call upon him. And they can't call upon him or they can't call upon someone in whom they have not believed. They can't believe in someone in whom they've never heard. They can't hear without a preacher. No one can preach unless they're sent. And everybody in this church has been sent. Not by me, not by Father Stanley, not by Father Acervo, not by Father White, not by Deacon Vince or Deacon Tim, Deacon Don, but by the Lord. started the day you were baptized, and it happens again every Sunday. Ite misa est. She, you, I, all of us are sent. There's work to do. That's what we're reminded at the end of every Mass. And furthermore, we said, this is what the world wants. This is what your friends want. This is what your spouse wants. This is what your children want. This is what your co-workers want. Even if they don't say it, even if they don't think it's true, it's what they want. And it's what they want because God has made every single one of us with a desire for Him. Remember Augustine's song last night? My heart 
Our hearts, every heart, searches restlessly and finds no rest until it rests in thee. And then we touched briefly at the end upon the uniqueness of your role in a particular way as laymen and women. A uniqueness that Pope John Paul II, drawing on the documents of Vatican II, worded this way. In a special way, it will be necessary to discover ever more fully the specific vocation of the laity, called to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs, that is, the things out there, and by ordering them according to the plan of God. You have your own role to play in the mission of the whole people of God in the church and in the world by their or your work for the evangelization and sanctification of people. We're going to talk a little bit tomorrow night about what all that means and how practically to do that. But tonight I want to focus our attention on some obstacles to our being light, either to our shining or to others seeing the Lord in us. And I'm sure none of this is new. At least I hope none of this is new. The Lord didn't do that for a few of us. He did that for all of us. The only way anybody's going to hear about that is if you and I talk about it. We know that. We know that's what he wants. We may be somewhere on the spectrum of being really convinced that that's what everybody else wants. And yet this is really hard to do. It's hard for all of us. At least there's certain situations where we want to take the bushel basket and just put it over our head and hide. Just blend in. So I want to examine a little bit about why that's the case. This isn't meant to be any exhaustive list, but as I was praying and reflecting, these are at least the most significant obstacles to my or your being light. I have eight of them, just to give you a warning. First, I didn't know this is what he wanted. Well, you do now. (laughs) If they were all this quick, we'd be out of here in ten minutes and go eating cookies. But they're not, so... That's the first one, huh? Second, I didn't think Catholics did this. I mean, isn't that for the people who hand out the tracts like they gave them to Dennis? You know, the people who walk up to you or me at the beach out of nowhere and say, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? It's like, dude, I'm at the beach playing volleyball. What are you doing? (laughs) But Catholics do this. Peter and Paul did this. Peter and Paul were Catholic. This might be especially true if we're older. We might be of the mindset that this is something that our non-Catholic brothers and sisters in the faith, that they do, but we don't. There's a number of us in the church who probably remember a day when the culture in which we were living was pretty much imbued with Judeo-Christian values. There wasn't the urgency, perhaps, to shine. That day is over. That day is long gone. All you got to do is... Pick a topic and examine the difference between now and 30, 40, 50, 20 years ago, depending upon the topic. But we can also adopt, I think, the mentality, maybe especially as a parish family. We've been talking about this as a staff. That the parish exists for the sake of the membership, which is to say we exist pretty much just to care for the people who belong to the parish. Now, don't get me wrong. By all means, we're supposed to care for the people of the parish, That's a most important part of what it is that we do, whether it's the pastoral team, the priests and the deacons and the parish staff and all the different outreaches and communities that we have. We minister to each other by all means, but that's not the extent of our ministry. The essence of being Catholic, the essence of being Catholic is to be missionary, which simply means to be sent. 
That's what missio means. Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And again and again, we have to remind ourselves that the essence of the church is to spread the gospel in what is, to me anyway, one of the most powerful passages or most forceful passages on this topic. Pope John Paul II, back in 1991, in a talk he gave on World Mission Day, put it this way. He said, no Christian community is faithful to its duty unless it's missionary. Either it is a missionary community or it is not even a Christian community. So either Our Lady of Good Counsel is a missionary community or we're not Christian. Is this for us? Emphatically, yes. Is it just for us? Emphatically, no. Third huge obstacle for many of us is fear. Fear just paralyzes for whatever it is that we're afraid of, but perhaps for many of us, in a particular way, it paralyzes us when it comes to being missionaries. And the fear comes in many different forms, two that come particularly to mind for me. We can be afraid of what people think. But think about this. I mean, come on. We are obnoxious about all sorts of things. I'm not encouraging us to be obnoxious Catholics, okay? Don't get me wrong. But we're obnoxious without any concern, seemingly, about, well, not about the Lions, but about a good football team or uh, the USA and can Look at 80% of Canada watched the gold medal hockey game. 80% of the country watched the hockey game. They didn't watch it subdued. Oh, boy, we won. That's nice. Great. They showed no hesitation to be loud and boisterous and show their nationality and their love for a hockey team. That's great. Hockey's a great game. It's a game. Many of us have no hesitation being not the least bit afraid to voice our opinion about all sorts of things. But, man, the moment we want to talk about the God who loves us so much that he made us and he created us and he redeemed the world and he suffered for us, he's got this amazing plan. It's like, oh, the head goes in the ground. We're like an ostrich. Oh, oh, can't talk about that. That just doesn't make much sense. You shouldn't be afraid of that. If you're afraid of that, then why aren't we afraid of all the other things that we talk about? Paul says to the Christian community in Rome at the beginning of the letter that he writes to them, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Many Catholics, many Christians are ashamed of the gospel. Why are we ashamed of that? He's not ashamed of me. He didn't hesitate to become man for me, to bleed for me, to get ripped to shreds for me, to offer me salvation to be put back together to find happiness eternal happiness may we never be ashamed of the gospel any of us we can also be afraid that we're not eloquent enough a lot of us feel that way perhaps a lot of laymen and women feel that way you may or may not be all that familiar with all the details of the story of the exodus like you might have seen the movie with charlton heston but you may have never really read exodus it's worth knowing moses had the same hesitancy So God appears to Moses, you know, the burning bush that's not consumed. Like any of us, Moses goes, that's kind of interesting. I should come and see that. So he walks to it. God begins to speak to him out of the burning bush. Then he tells Moses, I have seen what's going on with my people, and I mean to rescue them. And I'm going to rescue them through you. And here's what Moses says. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either heretofore or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. The tradition is that Moses stuttered. 
Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, send, I pray, someone else. Isn't that us? Lord, I don't know how to speak like whoever. But eloquence or the lack of eloquence is not the issue. The Lord just needs us to open our mouth. We don't come preaching persuasively. The power of the gospel is not based upon the eloquence of the speaker. The power of the gospel is based upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the gospel. It's not dependent upon you or me. We just have to talk. It worked out pretty well for Moses and for the people of Israel. The fourth obstacle is what I would call a defeatist attitude. It's that mindset that thinks, what difference am I really going to make? I mean, what good's really going to come out of being a real estate agent and handing somebody who's coming in to sell a house or buy a house a Bible? How is that going to impact anybody? Well, here, umpteen years later, here that somebody who received that Bible from someone who had the courage to offer it to you just spoke to all of us. There's a family that's been changed, an individual that's been changed. You throw a stone into the water and it ripples out almost to infinity. I went on a pilgrimage a few years back with some folks, some of whom are in the church I know. We did a cruise in the footsteps of St. Paul. We went to Corinth and Ephesus and Rome and different places. And I think I've said this before. I've never done a cruise before. I left there with the conviction I will never do another pilgrimage by cruise again, but I will definitely do another cruise again. <laughs> Just because it, it's somewhat awkward. If you've ever done a cruise, picture trying to do a pilgrimage you know, as you go back up for the fifth time to the ice cream buffet. <laughs> it's a little challenging. But I liked the life. It was quite attractive. I did another cruise last year. We did married couples. I know some people in the church who went on that, too. That was a little bit easier to do. Anyway, when we were on this cruise, I remember sailing through, I think we were through the Aegean at the time, and it was dark, and I was sitting on the back of the ship. I came to find out you don't call it a boat, you call it a ship. So we're on the back of the ship. I think I was alone, and I was just looking out, and it was the coastline of Turkey. And it was just dark as can be. And every once in a while, there were a few lights, those cities set on a hill. And I tried to picture what must have been going through Paul's mind. Because Paul sailed all around, not in a boat or a ship like I was in, or we were in, but he sailed all over. And I kept thinking, what was in his mind as he tried to imagine how in the world are they going to believe me? I'm going to tell them that there's a God who made us in his own image and likeness to share his life forever, that he's so passionately in love with us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He's so crazy about us, he allowed himself to get tortured to death by creatures whom he had made, also that our sins could be forgiven, also that death would be destroyed. He rose from the dead, not in spirit, but in body. Yeah, right. I remember landing in Ephesus, which is obviously one of the communities that Paul writes a letter to. And the fascinating thing of going on pilgrimages to holy sites is you're standing in the places where all these things that we hear about from this ambo or wherever you go to church, Sunday after Sunday, actually happened. And it just becomes instantly real because you realize, I'm in Ephesus. This is the place. And Ephesus is this tremendous collection of ruins. And in Ephesus still, there's a theater which sat thousands of people in which they used to perform different dramas and whatnot. And 
That theater is the place of a significant scene in the Acts of the Apostles, where Paul, after he shows up in Ephesus, which, if you know your ancient history, is one of the sites of one of the seven ancient wonders. One of the ancient wonders was known as the Temple of Artemis, who, among other things, was the goddess of fertility. It was a port city. It attracted the crowd that port cities attract. And Paul goes in, he starts preaching the gospel, and a lot of people start turning to the Lord, and it creates some problems for all these people who sell all these little trinkets to Artemis. And so in this theater, it's entirely intact. It's 2,000 years old. It's entirely intact. They're standing in there reading the account of what happened, and they're chanting over and over again. This huge riot starts taking place. And thousands of people are yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they begin to get afraid of Paul's life, so they scoot Paul out of there so he doesn't get killed. Well, most of us here don't have a clue who Artemis of the Ephesians is. Of this ancient wonder, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, all that's left standing today, it was this massive temple, is this little column. It's about as tall as I am. It's in the middle of a pasture. That's all that's left. And we date the year to Jesus, who nobody or maybe a dozen people in that theater had ever heard of. What difference can you and I make? Pretty significant difference, obviously. The day of Pentecost had 12 people in the upper room. We have far more than 12 people in this church. Look what the Holy Spirit did with them. Can you imagine what he could do with us? If we just let him. Fifth obstacle can be a preoccupation about our past. How could God use me, given all that I've done? What are people who knew me going to say? This is a huge concern. What are people who know me going to say? Well, again, think of anybody in Scripture. Think of Peter. Acts chapter 4 tells the story of Peter. Peter and John were imprisoned. After the day of Pentecost, the Lord uses them to heal a man, then they're out preaching again, and the religious leaders are going crazy. And so they throw Peter and John into jail, and then the next day they haul them in front of the same people who tried Jesus. Caiaphas is at the center. Remember him? Caiaphas starts interrogating Peter. At a certain point, Caiaphas could have looked at him and went, You? Aren't you the guy who was there that night? Afraid? The little slave girl asked you three times who you were and you went so far as to condemn yourself to hell? That's what he did. He called a curse down upon himself. You are now in front of me bearing witness to this Jesus whom you denied? Something obviously happened to Peter that gave him courage to do that. Think of Paul. Paul used to round up Christians, send them off to prison, and he was at least responsible for the death of Stephen. And who knows how many more? In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, describing his conversion, all they, the Christian community, heard was that the one who was formerly persecuting them is now one of them. You don't think Paul, when he stood up in assembly or started shaking hands to people, didn't run into a few people whose family members he had arrested? The Christian community is not very big. You don't think he met people for whom he was responsible of either imprisoning loved ones or ruining families because of his zeal? Undoubtedly, he did. What about Mary Magdalene? We don't know much about Mary Magdalene. All we know is this. She had seven demons, and Jesus drove them out of her. This was a messed up woman, all right? And she was known to be a messed up woman. You couldn't find a less credible testimony 
to the resurrection of Jesus than Mary Magdalene. This is a woman who had a reputation of being nuts. The Lord picks her to be what the church has always called the apostle to the apostles. He reveals himself first to her. Can you imagine the reaction of the apostles as she walks into the upper room and says, He's alive. Uh Uh-huh. That's her. There she goes again. Just can't let it go, can you? Can't deal with it, woman. Can't wake up to reality. Dead people don't come back to life. You, of all people, I'm not going to listen to. So what? So we got a past. used to scare me when I was first ordained. I used to sit there in Divine Child and be... And actually, some of the people who belonged to Divine Child, I knew when I was in college. Basketball coach of Divine Child was my roommate in college. He knew a lot about me. Whether I was coherent or not, he knew a lot about me. And at certain days, I used to think, gosh, what if he just stood up in the middle of a homily and went, you got to be kidding me. This is you? I mean, come on. And then at a certain point, I thought, you know what? Who cares? Someone ever stood up? The response to that is, you're right. That's exactly who I was. And there's a lot of days when I still mess up and stumble and fall and sin. But nothing will ever be the same since Jesus broke in. So say whatever you want. I don't care. Cardinal Newman, he was an Anglican who converted to Catholicism. His cause is open. He used to say this great line as regards fear. He says, why in the world are we so concerned about the opinion of people we don't think very highly of? (laughs) Now, we don't want to identify the people that we don't think very highly of, obviously, but it's a great line to keep in mind. Shortly before I was ordained, I did what's known as the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. It's this 30-day prolonged retreat. You get a chance to spend hours a day in prayer, and you're just meditating on the Gospels. I remember it was just before I was ordained, and you got all the zeal of a newly ordained deacon about to be a priest and couldn't wait to get to Divine Child where I was first assigned and at the same time, not a little bit, concerned about how people would hear whatever it is that I was going to try to say. And one of the meditations one day was the meditations on the resurrection of Jesus and in particular on his apparition to Mary Magdalene in Matthew 28. It's 28.10. And Jesus says to Mary, tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. And just instantly, that passage just brought a peace to me as I realized, whether it's you or me, just like Magdalene, Magdalene's task wasn't to convince the apostles. That was the Holy Spirit's task. Magdalene's task was to make an announcement to the apostles and let the Lord do the rest. You just have to talk. Everything else is up to him. Tell them, go to Galilee, and you'll see him. So for us, we just got to point people where they can find him or tell them about him. And he'll do the rest. Why? Because this is what he wants. This is his desire. That's why he's made us. A sixth obstacle. Let's call it a feeling of contentment. This perhaps isn't so much a, uh, an obstacle to being light as it is to coming to the light or coming to the Lord. It's this sense of being satisfied. sense that everything's okay with life. And for many of us, so long as everything is okay with life, we may not turn to God. And God has a way of dealing with this. 
It's often a painful way of dealing with it, but he has a way of dealing with it. I know for me personally, despite all the things that I had seen in my family, despite the happiness of my mom and dad, the joy that I saw in my siblings, the miracle that I saw in my mom, you'd think you'd see a miracle like that and you'd convert. But miracles don't convert most people. They convert the people to whom they happen. We often say that. If I could only see a miracle, I'd believe. That's not true. I know that. At least it's not necessarily true. I saw a miracle. I saw tons of miracles. I saw legs grow. I saw tremendous things. They did nothing other than tell me, God's got a lot of power. What did something was crisis. That's what did something. What did something was walking out of my apartment that night in the middle of a party, looking at it going, this is just a waste. What did it was years of being frustrated beyond belief of finding no purpose to life. Nothing that I could throw myself into. You know, I thought anyway, I wanted to get married so bad, I wanted a family, and when I was still working at Ford, I was dating different people. It did nothing for me. It was just empty. I thought this is what I wanted. I didn't want it. It was this existential moment of, my life is so empty. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. And God was gracious enough to not allow me in a whole lot of distractions so that I had to be confronted with this every day. That's what changed my life. How many of you had children make first communions in the last couple of years? number of us. You can't see each other's hands, but I can. There's a great passage that we read in uh, that Mass. The kids don't get it, but we get it. It's in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, and it, it says this. God is talking through Moses to the people, and he, he's talking about their journey in the wilderness after he rescued them from Egypt and before he brought them into the Promised Land and before he fed them with the manna. The manna is this miraculous bread, this food that the Israelites were provided by God with, their whole journey in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Moses says this, The Lord, before he fed you with the manna, made you go hungry. That was a gift. He makes us go hungry. What changed it all for the prodigal son? It changed it all when his money was gone and he had nothing left and he longed, Luke says, to feed himself with the pods that he fed the pigs with. Here's a good Jewish boy feeding pigs. Pathetic. Feeding an animal you can't eat. Hard to get much lower than that. And all of a sudden the prodigal son says, you know what? I think there's a better way to live. Crisis woke him up. What about in the Gospels when the apostles are out at the, the sea and they're rowing and there's this big storm and Jesus comes walking on the lake? Remember that? Do you remember that Jesus sent them into the storm? He stayed on the shore. He says, why don't you guys row to the other side? I'll meet you. Like he didn't know the storm was coming? Uh-uh. Not a chance. He sends them into the storm intentionally. For one reason, to give to them the gift of having the illusion that they are okay and self-sufficient shattered. C.S. Lewis, again, who I... I often love to read, I'm sure, I hope many of us read him often, in a book he wrote called The Problem of Pain, which is a very excellent treatment on suffering. He says this, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. To be sure, pain can drive many people from God, but it can also be the thing that wakes us up and makes us turn to him. But I think the two biggest obstacles to us being light are these. 
The first is sin. Sin obscures the light. Sin's devastating. My sin, your sin, the church's sin, it's devastating. It's like blowing on the flame, and it begins to flicker. Now, to be sure, the message of the gospel is not, hey, we found this tremendous community of perfect people, come join us. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel was, we have been found by the only one who can put us back together. And so in a certain sense, even our sins, God can use to take our eyes off of each other and put them back onto him who is the only one worth adoring and the only one worth following wholeheartedly. No one else. And yet, sin obscures the light. Our abuse of freedom, our willful, intentional sin. Again, it puts that bushel basket over the candle. Think of the abuse scandals in the church. They're devastating. Think of what the people of Ireland are going through right now, the Catholics in Ireland. They're devastated. We're going to deal with that for most of the rest of our lives. But the sinfulness is hardly confined to the ordained brothers and sisters. We all sin. Ordained, religious, laymen, laywomen, you, me, every day. Scripture says the just man falls seven times a day. How often do you think we fall or I fall? John Paul used to say over and over again, the world's tired of listening to us talk. They want to see it. It's like the world is crushed when a Christian leader falls because here's someone's reminding me that maybe this is all true. And then they fall, and of course they fall because we're all in need of salvation. We're all willful. And it can have a devastating effect on people, perhaps especially on people who have little faith. And connected to all of this, there is within us this disorder, this kind of darkness. It goes by a number of different names in the church. We call it technically concupiscence. What's that mean? Concupiscence is this inclination to sin, this inclination to be selfish. It means something like this. It means even though I know and love the Lord and know that no one can do for me what he can do for me, still, every day, there is the constant temptation to kick him out of the center of my life and put me back there. Paul says in Romans, the good I want to do, I don't do, and that which I hate, I end up doing. Who can't relate to that? And when we do that, we don't shine. The final, and to my mind anyway, the biggest obstacle to our being light is simply this. Who knows what quantifier to put on this at the beginning? I'll say many. Many Catholics simply don't know him. We don't know him. We were baptized, we made our first communion, got confirmed, maybe got married in the church. It's just the subject of a book we hear from every week or as often as we can find the time to squeeze Mass into our schedule. God remains for many of us, not for us, we're here, we're at a mission. Still, he remains for many of us a subject in a book, not a person whom I know loves me and whom I love. And because many Catholics don't know him, or many Christians don't know him for that matter, and the difference that he alone can make, we aren't convinced, I mean really convinced, that he is the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. When Pope Benedict came to the United States a few years ago, he was in New York City, and he gave this image that I often go back to. I don't think it's original to him. I think he's using it from somebody else. But he's making a comparison between a Gothic church building and the Christian life. And he says, you walk by an old church building that's windows are all stained glass. And from the outside, the stained glass just looks dull, dark, heavy, ugly. 
And then you walk into the church and the sun shines through the stained glass and you're on the other side of it and you're just amazed by the brilliance and the beauty. He said the Christian life is a lot like that. From the outside, it just looks like less. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. It doesn't look like more. But you walk in. I mean, you get all in. You throw your heart in with the Lord. And it's beautiful. It's not easy, but it's beautiful. So let me touch on um, three quick remedies to these obstacles. First, we got to meet him. That's the key. And it doesn't cut it to say, well, I met him. Any more than you can answer, well, I married Janet, you know, however many years ago. You got to keep meeting her every day. You got to keep talking to her every day. You got to keep loving her every day. This wasn't a decision that was made once and then was done with. I got to meet him over and over and over again. That's how relationships grow. We are not members of a club or followers of a system or devotees to a code. There's a dear priest who passed away about a year ago now who always used to say, we are not Marines. I love Marines. God bless the Marines by all means. But to be a Christian is not to be a Marine. We do not follow a code. We are in love with a person. And love is far more demanding than any code. We love three persons, actually. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And like any other person, any other person, these persons can be met. In fact, they want to be met. That's why they made us, so that we would meet them. That's why the Son became flesh, became born of the Virgin Mary, so that we would meet him. That's why the Holy Spirit dwells in you, so that you would come to know the Father and know the Son. Not so that we could get some info and some data, You know, when we say no biblically or in the church, we mean it's a relationship. Adam knew Eve and she bore Cain. That's knowledge. The Lord wants us to know him, to be in an intimate friendship with him. So how do we get to know him? Or how do we get to meet him? Two ways, mainly. First, we meet him in prayer. Prayer is one of those words I think is oftentimes for many of us, it's too formal sounding, it's too stuffy sounding, it's got all sorts of connotations that may or may not be helpful for many of us. All prayer is, is talking to God, listening to God. That's how you get any other friendship or relationship. We get to know him the same way we get to know anyone by spending time with him. If your best friend says, hey, I got something for you to read, and you say, thanks very much, and you take it and you put it on your bookcase, that's not very helpful. Presumably, you'd actually open it up and read the letter that he wrote to you or that she wrote to you. Well, that's what God's done. He's written us a letter. That's how the church talks about the scriptures. They are God's letters to us, his love letter to us. We listen to him, we talk with him. I tell this story a lot to kids, high school kids and college kids about praying. When I was in college, I knew this one guy who I won't name, who I haven't met since or seen since, but he was a real athletic guy, good-looking guy. He was, I think, hands down the most egotistical, vain person I've ever met in my life because he knew he was good-looking and he was a good athlete. And so we'd be at parties together, and I'll never forget this one night we're at this party, and it's a room, however big the room is, and we're in, like all the guys, you know, we're in a corner. So we're in a corner, we're talking about different things, and uh, there's this beautiful girl on the far side of the room, and he sees her. And he looked at me, he says, John, you see that girl over there? I said, yep. He says, I'm just going to look at her, and she's going to come over here. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You actually have to go talk. You have to get up and initiate a conversation. And that's how it works with God. you got to get up and go talk to Him. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just do it wherever you are. Just talk to Him. 
In my mind, the three easiest prayers are all one word. Help, thanks, and sorry. And then you just go from there. (laughs) But that keeps me occupied for most of the time that I'm praying. Prayer is the essence and the soul, the substance and the soul of the Christian life. If to be a Christian is to know God and to live in a deep friendship with Him, it is impossible to do that unless we actually sit down with Him every day. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid myself. I can't say I have a friendship with somebody that I rarely have ever talked to. I might have heard about him or her, but it's not a friendship. Try this for a marriage proposal. Hey, honey, how about you and me once a week, every week, for about an hour, we get together and talk. That doesn't fly. That's how many Catholics approach God. And we complain if it gets longer than an hour, because we really don't know him. About prayer, Pope John Paul II wrote once, Our Christian communities have to become schools of prayer where the meeting with Christ is expressed not just in imploring help. It's fine to ask God for things, but, man, if that's all we ever do with a friend, it ain't much of a friendship. Expressed not just in imploring help, but also in thanksgiving, praise, adoration, contemplation, listening, and ardent devotion until the heart truly falls in love. It would be wrong, he said, to think that ordinary Christians can be content with a shallow prayer that is unable to fill their whole life, especially in the face of the many trials to which today's world subjects faith, they would not only be mediocre Christians, but Christians at risk. It's one of the reasons that we're doing Vespers every Sunday during Lent. It's another way to try to to model and to give us as a community a chance to put this idea of Pope John Paul into practice, to be a school of prayer. This is especially important for you if you've got kids at home. We have to model prayer. You've got to teach kids how to pray. Let them hear you pray. Let them hear you say prayers, by all means, but more importantly, let them hear you pray. Without the hour that I spend every morning in prayer, I not only would have left the priesthood years ago, I would have left the faith. I know that. And an hour is not enough. There's undoubtedly people here who who know this is something that I'm supposed to commit to and haven't yet. Tonight's a night to make a commitment. Don't go crazy and say, I'm going to start praying an hour tomorrow. It's like somebody who's never run saying, hey, I'm going to go out and run 10 miles tomorrow. Ain't going to happen. You're going to take three steps and pull a muscle in the hamstring. But set a reasonable, realistic goal. If you're here tonight, and only you know this, and you're not setting aside time every day to pray, to listen to the Lord, to read his word, to talk to him, then start tonight. could be 10 minutes. Don't let it stay with 10 minutes, but that could be a place to start. And hold yourself to it. If that's you, there may not be a more important resolution that you will make. This is the purpose of life, to know him. But we don't just meet him in prayer, we also meet him in service. The great commandment is what? To love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. It's in that order, to love the Lord first, because no one's done for me what he has done for me, but it's also to love my neighbor. Most of us tend to fall into one extreme or the other on this. It's like, Lord, you I love. These people are nuts. You can have them. Or, I love the people, I never talk to the Lord. My whole life's a prayer. That's usually a cop-out for, I don't really pray. Or it can be. Shouldn't say usually. We've got to do both. My brother-in-law told me this great story one time. He was uh, asked by some folks at St. Anastasia if he wanted to go and uh, do something or other. I forget what it was. It was a Sunday morning, and I think they were either going to 
deliver some food to some people who were sick, or they were going to help paint some guy's house before mass, or they were going to they were going to do some act of charity for somebody who was in need. And so they asked my brother-in-law, Steve, and they said, hey, you want to come join us? And he said, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. And my brother-in-law is a really gracious guy. He's got a servant's heart coming out of his ears. I said, when are you doing it? Sunday morning? You know, Sunday morning is the time for me and the Lord. We just dig into his word and let him refresh me in that way. So he said, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for that. So Sunday morning comes, he wakes up, he starts praying, he makes a cup of coffee, he's reading the Bible. And he says, as he's reading the Bible, he hears the Lord say, hey, you want to read about me or do you want to meet me? And he closed the Bible and he went and served. So how many of us here can testify to whether it's PBJ Saturday mornings or whether it's one of the soup kitchens or helping out at a crisis pregnancy center or all the various ways that we give? So many people go down to St. Al's every week. We know. We see the Lord there. That's how we meet him. Whatsoever you did to the least of my brothers and sisters, Jesus said, you did to me. Second remedy. Serious repentance. By that I mean a firm commitment to live a life of holiness. Much like prayer, holiness is one of these words which can be an obstacle to many people. We have all these images in our head when we hear holy or I'm supposed to be holy. Holiness is not like a real attractive concept. For most people. God wants you to be holy. Woo! You know? Doesn't exactly get my blood boiling. But it should. We just got to help understand it. To be holy simply means to belong to God. Remember St. Patrick's breastplate? Christ be in the eyes of all who see me, in the ears of all who hear me, on the lips of all who speak of me, in the hearts of all who love me, in the minds of all who think of me. Christ be before me and behind me, above me and beneath me, on my right and on my left. Be my all. That's holiness. Help me, Lord. I haven't yet got through the day doing this, but help me to do everything for you. Again, John Paul, in a letter that he wrote, you know, we had all this build-up to the year 2000, and then it came and went, and he wrote this letter saying, okay, that's over, now what? And he said there, this teaching on holiness must not be misunderstood as if it involves some kind of extraordinary existence possible only for a few uncommon heroes of holiness. The ways of holiness are many, according to the vocation of each individual. I thank the Lord, he says, that in these years he has enabled me to beatify and canonize a large number of Christians and among them many lay people who attain holiness in the most ordinary circumstances of life. The time has come, he said, to repropose wholeheartedly to everyone this high standard of ordinary Christian living. Last night I talked about this little red light. I asked, has it ever been changed and how do we do it? Well, I found out it's been changed once. I guess there's a little switch there and the thing drops down and I'll call you when we do it again. But <laughs> Carl told me this this morning. I find this so apropos to what John Paul just said. You know what's in there? It says ordinary little standard wattage light bulb. That's all it is. Just an ordinary light bulb. Go down to CVS, pick it up, screw it in, boom. Lights up the whole city on the hillside right there. What better image can we get for what John Paul is talking about? You don't have to be some grandiose anything. We're all just a bunch of ordinary light bulbs through whom the Lord wants to shine. All of us. No one's disqualified from that. That's not a 10,000 candle power light bulb. <laughs> Lastly, I'm more and more convinced the key to this really happening I mean, the real key, we'll take the others as givens, I guess, but the oomph that's got to happen for this city to get set on fire is the Holy Spirit has to descend upon us in power. That's the key. 
John Paul was the one who coined this phrase, the new evangelization, which is what he called for in our time. And he also used to say that in order for that to happen, we need a new Pentecost. The same way that the Holy Spirit descended upon 12 cowardly men who all hid inside a locked room for days. And then look what happened to them. Tongues of fire appear upon them on the day of Pentecost. They are filled with courage and out they go. And because out they went, the world changed. The whole world changed. We often hear this little expression about history. You know, history is written by the winners. Not so. At least not so when you're talking about Christians. They didn't win a thing. Not for 260 years. Here's what they won. They won beheading, burned alive, skinned alive, crucified, and every other way you can think of being martyred. And yet their witness won the world, the known world, all because they were animated by the power of the Holy Spirit, which enabled them to love, to forgive, to live joyfully, even in the midst of tremendous hardships, to burn brightly in the midst of a really dark world. And just like the Holy Spirit did that with them, so he wants to do that with us, and all we got to do is ask for it. He wants to do this. You know, we were trying to think, what can we do to keep the momentum going from something like this? These are always great opportunities for us to get together as a parish family and to enjoy prayer and some fellowship and all the things that we do here, but, but then what? Now it's over. Well, in trying to think of that, one of the things that we thought would be most important to try to do is to offer what's called a Life in the Spirit seminar. Some of you may or may not be familiar with that. It's a short time of prayer and an intense asking of the Holy Spirit to do with us exactly what he did with Our Lady and the Apostles in the upper room to turn up the flame, to fill us with courage. That's what changed my life, going through one of these when I was in college, or just out of college. I was at our prayer meeting that meets here Friday nights, first and third Fridays of the month, meets in the parish house. The first time I went to it, and gave a little reflection, and as I was in the back there praying, I share this with you as God is my witness. I'm standing in the back, praying with everybody, and this is what I heard the Lord say. John, this parish doesn't need another series of talks from you. Those are great. Those are helpful. That's fine. They don't need another program. They don't need another whole workshop on whatever. They need the power that only my Holy Spirit can give to them. If, in fact, we are to set Plymouth on fire, if we're going to shine brightly the way the Lord expects us to, the way our neighbors want us to, even though they don't know it sometimes, the only way that can happen is not by me or anybody else, any of the great priests that I get to serve with. It's not by us persuading anybody, doing anything. The only way that can happen is if the Holy Spirit falls upon us in a profound way, brings us into an incredibly intimate encounter with the Lord, fills us with courage, and convinces us that there is nothing more urgent that this world needs than Jesus. That's the only way it happens. In that corner, we have the mosaic of Our Lady of Good Counsel. Our patroness right next to it is one of the stained glass windows from the original church. On that stained glass window, if you've ever looked at it, is a prayer. The prayer simply says this, Send forth thy spirit, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. That's not just a beautiful little line and a pretty piece of stained glass. That's the truth. For us to burn, for us to shine, for the world to change, for Plymouth to come to know the Lord in the way that the Lord wants Plymouth to know him, we got to keep begging the Lord to send his Holy Spirit. Even today, I was walking through here praying the rosary late this afternoon. and Whenever I walk in the church, especially when I'm alone, 
this is my image. I just talked to Mary, who's our patroness, and say, okay, you were there on the day of Pentecost. You saw this happen. Pray that it'll happen again in this place, which is dedicated to you. Intercede for us, dear lady of good counsel, that the Lord will open up the roof of this church and pour out in abundance the gift of his Holy Spirit. I would ask you to join me in making that prayer. Let's ask the Lord to do that tonight before we go to bed. Let's make it a point to ask the Lord to do that in a particular way all throughout this season of Lent. Let's be the vessels that he wants us to be, filled with his grace and with his love and with his mercy and with his truth. Let's be courageous like Peter and Paul were. It doesn't matter how cowardly I was yesterday or this morning. I can change just like that. History proves it. May it happen again with us. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A traditional part of Father Ricardo's parish missions is a personal testimony. In the darkened worship space, the attendees heard this. My name is Dennis Orlowitz, and I'm a member of the Evangelization Committee here at Our Lady of Good Counsel. I personally struggled with worldly possessions and was a slave to what this world calls success. Yes, my life was great. Beautiful wife, three beautiful, healthy children, great job, cars, boats, sports, and lots of toys. But God was always last on my list. Now that you have an understanding of who I was, I would like to share with you those individuals who have shared their faith with me and helped me make a decision to turn my life over to God and make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. I was in the process of selling my home in Dearborn, and I had hired a real estate agent to handle the listing. One evening, while in her office, she asked me if I read the Bible, and I told her, yes, on Sunday mornings, we have three scripture readings. She then asked me, do you own or have a personal Bible for yourself? And I had to say no. She said, I would like to give you one, and I have bookmarked some verses for you to read. I offered to pay her for the Bible, but she told me, oh, no, I have made this my own personal ministry. When I am prompted by the Holy Spirit to share my faith, I do, and I give that person a Bible. She said, our pastor preaches that we are to share the word with everyone we meet. So I thanked her for the Bible, and when I got home, I placed it on my bookshelf in the living room where it stayed for some time. One evening, my neighbor came knocking at my front door. He told me that the pastor of the church he attended had requested that all members pick up three Gospels of John pamphlets and give them to three people they know. He said, I prayed about it, and I thought of you. I accepted it, and I thanked him, and I put it on my bookshelf next to the Bible where it stayed for a short time. My next spiritual encounter came with a friend. We stopped at a local pub to have a sandwich and a beer. While we were finishing our drink, we were approached by a nicely dressed young man in a suit and tie. He walked up to me and asked me if I had a personal relationship with Jesus. And I said, yes, I am. I'm a Catholic. He handed my friend and I a track and said, have a blessed day. Shortly after that encounter, I was restless one evening and could not sleep. So I got up, went to my bookshelf, As I proceeded to read the Gospel of John from cover to cover, the verses seemed to jump off the pages. I then proceeded to open the Bible and began reading the highlighted verses that the real estate agent had bookmarked for me. At that moment, I realized that I was not living my life for Christ, but I was living my life for self-gratification. 
Now what was I to do? My flesh did not want to surrender to my spirit. I will ask God a question. So I said with great sincerity in my heart, Lord God, if you are really real, I will serve you. Yes, God did answer me in a very supernatural way. And at that moment, tears began to flow from my eyes. I knew at that moment my flesh had lost the battle for my soul. And God in his divine mercy, love, was calling me to a new life journey to know him as Abba Father. The moral to this story is that we as Catholics living the one and true faith, when prompted by the Holy Spirit to share our faith, we must yield to the Holy Spirit and boldly share our faith. Luke 17:21, For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. We as the body of Christ, our lady good counsel, we must be in total unity with one thought in mind to invoke, to inspire, to evangelize every person we meet through example, words, and deeds that Christ desires none to perish, but that all will hear the word through us so that the message of salvation will flourish like wildfire with the overwhelming love of Jesus in their hearts. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who causes growth. Amen. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 813. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 813. 2010 Turning Up the Flame Mission number 3. Some Obstacles That Let Him Shine. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.